Well, welcome back, everyone. Glad that you're here for round two of a four-round knockout, knockdown, dragout exposition of the prayer book and our, our worship here at the Advent. Uh, glad that you're here today. Last week we went over some great things. I got great feedback uh, from a lot of you, so it sounds like a lot of the conversation is stirring and it's helpful. Um, and my my hope as one of your ministers is quite simply that it affects what happens to you and on you and in you, in your heart, on Sunday mornings as you worship here. My hope is that as you engage the liturgy, you hear something more. And that's why, you know, as we've been going through this, I want to review for these four weeks that we're together. We're in week two, um, and today we're going over morning prayer. I want to review our goals. Our goal really with this is to help better connect head and heart. It's so that this doesn't feel, the liturgy doesn't feel like a mere intellectual exercise or sort of stay up there because true worship begins where uh, head knowledge spills over into the heart, you know, which is why uh, the architect of the original prayer book said this about the purpose back in 1549 when he wrote the preface to the prayer book. He said, uh, the purpose for worship is that the people should continually profit more and more in knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with love of his true religion, you know? And so, gone from the idea of worshiping through the prayer book is that it would be dry, is that it would be rote, and filled with it, filled with the original architect's vision, is that it would be something that would inflame us with love, that we'd feel some burning in our hearts like those two guys that walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They'd be able to say at the end of it, when he was talking... Didn't you feel your hearts burning within you? And that's very much the kinds of questions that I hope friends and spouses and neighbors are asking each other as they walk out of worship. When you were praying, didn't you feel your heart burn? Didn't you? And they were like, no, that's just indigestion. No, 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 that was the Holy Spirit uh, working in and through the Word of God coming forth, right? The second goal is to tune our ears. I mean, this class is so that our ears are tuned particularly to hear the gospel in our worship. And why would we want to hear the gospel in our worship? Well, it has to do with what was going on historically at the time of the Reformation and what they read in the scriptures and found dramatically important. The central question being asked then was how are people changed? Andrew kind of preached on this this morning when he opened up for us John 3, where under cover of darkness, Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, and Nicodemus is kind of asking that question, whether he knows it or not. And Jesus is saying basically, nothing short of dying and rising, of being born again, will you be changed. This is the insight, the central scriptural insight that's recovered in this time about how people are changed. And so in the Reformation, this recovery of the scriptural vision is that people are changed by a work of God in the heart. People aren't changed by just conforming to outward acts, but by a work of God in the heart. Now that's interesting, because a lot of people accuse us who worship with the prayer book of just doing outward motions, because it's all there for us to do, right? But the reality is, at the very heart of the founding of prayer book worship, is the idea that it is only as God works in the heart. And how does God do this work? He does this work through His Word, particularly in the gospel. People were, uh, having grown up in the church their whole lives, reading passages of scripture anew that were saying things like, come to me, all you who are weary 
and I will give you rest. They were reading passages that said things like, uh, before the Father there is an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and it was bringing them from death to life. They were feeling their hearts burn. And it is this word, particularly through the gospel, that comes at us again and again, which is why the driving force behind the Reformation and therefore the driving force behind a Reformation understanding of what worship can be, can be summarized in this statement. We went over it a lot last week. The Word of God births faith. If we are to have faith, it's not going to be mustered from inside of us. It's going to be from this Word, this external Word that comes to us from the outside. This alien voice that declares to us that which, which we could never declare to ourselves. One could say that all the other religions of the world, as arrogant as this sounds, are human beings trying to come up with a word in themselves that will cause salvation. <laughs> and it never works. We need a word from outside ourselves, an incarnation of God to come to us and declare to us something that we couldn't make up on our own. You know, And that's the word that births faith, which is why we came up with this, this graphic that we teased out of all the ways in our liturgy that when the word of God comes, it's architected in our liturgy that we would respond in faith. Did you notice it today in, in uh, the Holy Communion liturgy after we were done reading uh, the scripture readings and, and going back and forth that our next response was what? The creed. We said the creed together. And why do we do that? Because the word of God coming at us births, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Why do we have the offertory after the sermon? Because the word of God is what births faith in us. So when the word of God is preached, then and only then can we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's the idea, right? So the heart of the prayer book is this idea. It's unleashing the word of God to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. And so today I want to go over how morning prayer does this in one fell swoop in hopes that next week or at 11, when you engage our morning prayer liturgy, Jesus Christ comes alive for you and in you again and afresh. So here's part of the rub of people I talk to about liturgical worship who aren't from this tradition or who are new or who feel like they come to the Advent for the first time and have never experienced anything like that. It feels like this. <laughs> An overwhelming inundation of stuff that's thrown at me and I don't know what it is, why it's in the order that it's in, right? And so from the voluntary to the voluntary and everything in between, it's this barrage coming at me faster than lightning, right? Um, that's what it feels like is overwhelmed and I'm not sure what to do with all these titles. So part of what we want to do is break it down today. And I'd say one helpful way of seeing the two-part structure of our liturgy, both in morning prayer and in communion, is finding where the hinge is. And I'll tell you, the hinge is always where the welcome is. The welcome always exposes the hinge between the first part and the second part of the liturgy, both in morning prayer and in holy communion. And so, if we were to analyze what's going on in morning prayer in its first half, and its second half. We would look at these first two columns of elements and we'd describe it this way. This is the ministry of the Word of God read. The ministry of the Word of God read. From the voluntary to the point where the grace happens and we pray the general thanksgiving. You feel an arc in that moment and it wraps up before the sermon and the second half, right? 
And we might call this the ministry of the Word of God as it is read. The second half, we would call after the welcome and the blessing, the Word of God preached. So what do we hear right now? We're hearing that the service from beginning to end is a ministry of the living and active, think of Hebrews, the living and active Word of God coming at us in two ways. The Word of God read and the Word of God preached. But nevertheless, the one Word who is, according to John 1, Jesus Christ, coming at us in the power of the Spirit, right? Coming at us as the Scriptures are being read and as we're responding and reacting and and talking and dialoguing. And then coming at us as a broken human being stands in a pulpit and awkwardly preaches forth Jesus Christ himself. And somehow, in those very, what, what the ref- reformers would call creaturely moments, where creatures, human beings, you and me, where we're giving each other this word, the Spirit fills it and uses it to do supernatural things, like kill you and make you alive. Like cause your sinful, broken heart and members to die and resurrect Jesus in you. So Sunday morning shouldn't feel like I yawned my way through the liturgy. It should feel like open heart surgery. It should feel like death and resurrection. It should feel like burning hearts. Lord have mercy. We want it to be that way, right? We want it to be that way. But in case this sort of two-part kind of um, idea is a little bit difficult for us to to grasp, I've come up with a little handy-dandy graph here. For those of us who are, are more visual... And I mean it when I say that this line is very much what we might expect to feel emotionally as we walk through the liturgy. If you look at this picture, this is the way morning prayer moves. So let me describe it to you. Morning prayer can be summarized this way. It's a journey from where we are on earth to the heart of the Father. A journey from where we are to the heart of the Father. And then back into the world on mission. Okay, a journey from where we are to the heart of the Father and back to the world on mission. And I want to briefly walk through the first section of this and the second section to kind of make sense and help you place these elements of the liturgy in these moments so that you get the big arc. Because I, I think one of the things that's hard is when we have all these elements, the, the journey is lost on us. It's like we're walking on a hiking path and all we're doing is staring at our feet rather than lifting our eyes and seeing the whole landscape, the mountain peak that we're headed toward, the valley that's going to be behind that mountain peak. It's that kind of idea. I want us to, to zoom out, to take a, a 20,000 view look at the way that this works, all right? So the first half, the Word of God read, has this sort of squiggly arc to it. From earth to the Father's heart. And even before I go on, I want to say again, prayer book worship is often accused of being rather heartless and lacking maybe that sense of intimacy between us and God because it sort of feels like we're holding God at at arm's length with this exterior liturgy that we walk through. I will tell you, that's completely contrary to the whole concept of why it was designed. It was actually designed to gain a sense of of God drawing us in to his heart, to feel and hear intimately his wooing and loving and tender words to his bride. You read those passages in the prophets where God talks painfully about the way his bride has strayed and says, I wooed her to myself 
so that I could speak tender words to her. You know, it's like that famous passage in Isaiah 40 that we read every Advent and Christmas. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her that, that her long suffering and her warfare is over. Why? Because Christ has come and I've come to tell you about that comfort. That's what's going on. So God, rather than us rather journeying up there, God is drawing us. Um, I saw someone tweet this week something really funny, but it's a great illustration. Uh, they, all they tweeted was a picture of sanctification, those words. And then it was uh, this, this video of this guy who was uh, approaching an escalator and then he kind of fumbled down, fell over on the escalator and it drug him up. And we're all laughing. And that's the picture of what being drawn to the heart of the Father is like. We try our best, we fall backwards and God sucks us up by his grace, right? Uh, Sanctification is very much like collapsing on the escalator of grace. And I will tell you that morning prayer liturgy is intended to help you collapse on the escalator of grace. I know it's terribly small. Let me read them to you. (laughs) Um, These are the elements that comprise the first set. It goes from the voluntary to the hymn in procession to the opening sentences. Notice the dip down. That's confession of sin. Again, this is the intended emotional hue and the emotional movement. The declaration of forgiveness And then this cycle of um, scripture readings, the invitatory hymn and the psalm, the canticle and the gospel and the hymn, and then the creed. It's all drawing us closer and closer to the Father. And then the most intimate part of the first part of our liturgy is all these prayers, the Lord's Prayer, the suffrages, the collects of the day and the collect, uh, the prayers of intercession, prayers of general thanksgiving and grace. And that stuff is there to be the sort of the final part of getting to the heart of the Father. Kind of like the night of the Last Supper when John is laying his head on on the the breast of Jesus. You know, it's that moment when after hearing all these words of God to us, we're drawn in and able to talk to him and tell him the innermost desires of our hearts, which is why our prayers of intercession, why these very personal prayers are being prayed in that moment. So again, it's a journey from there to there. Focusing in on uh, this first part. When we come into worship, there's this big processional that happens. It's meant to probably signify several things. Number one, it's meant to signify that already going on in heaven, according to the scripture in Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5, is uh, this gathering of heavenly beings that we can't understand that are worshiping around the throne. Some of them are white-robed martyrs. Others of them are these flaming ones, these seraphim. Others of them are called the elders. Others of them are your own relatives, the people that you know and love who have died in Christ, who are around that throne, worshiping the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the processional is a small picture of how we're entering into that already moving stream of worship. It's beautiful to see it and to think of that I think of another thing, too. Um, I think of actually what Andrew preached on today, that as these crosses sort of move by, it can be ritualistic. Here's how I think of it. I think of them like the snake in the wilderness being held up to remind me, look to Jesus. He will heal you. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He is the bronze snake in the wilderness being lifted up. So look to him. This is what worship is about. It's about seeing Jesus and being healed. Okay? And the third thing I, I think about is the, is the fact that when the procession comes from the back, it's an acknowledgement that all the people that are up front leading worship aren't holier than you. They come from you. They are from the congregation. They're just congregants that God said, I want you for this role right now. But we are no better than you. We emerge from the people to come and lead us all in these prayers. All right? After that, pretty dramatically, we're confronted with the opening sentence and a call to confession. Now, why in the world would we do something as not seeker-sensitive <laughs> as confess our sins on the front? That's very offensive. I mean, if we want to be uh, sensitive to people who are coming in who maybe don't know Jesus, we don't want to just tell them that they're a sinner on the front end. The reality is, if you are being confronted by the presence of Almighty God, which is nothing short of what worship is, encountering in gathered form the presence of Almighty God, concentrated because of His special gifts that He gives in this moment of worship, the first thing that you're going to see is like Isaiah. When he, when he said, I saw the, the Lord high and lifted up and the train of His robe filled the temple with glory. And the heavenly beings were saying, holy, holy, what, what happened next? He fell on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Confession, right? He, there's nothing else to do when you're confronted with God Almighty than to confess your sins to him, right? And so we have this opportunity to come clean. And the words of the confession are very powerful, stitched together by Scripture, which is awesome because we realize as we're praying this confession, we can't even find the right words. We need God to put them in our mouth. We're that desperate that we don't even know what to confess. So God is like, here you go. I will give you what you need to say on a silver platter. And it's beautiful, right? Our confession is beautiful. Right after confession, just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, what happens to Isaiah after he confesses? He beholds something. It is an angel coming from the altar of God with a fiery, flaming coal. And the angel declares this to Isaiah, See, your sin has been atoned for. Your sin has been paid for. And in symbolic form, the declaration of forgiveness in Jesus Christ is given to Isaiah. You know, so nothing short of this pretty charismatic and powerful and overwhelming moment is what's felt right at the beginning, this, this movement downward into the darkness and depths of our own depravity. And then from that low vantage point comes God flying down through His Holy Spirit and saying, See, I have provided a way for you. And so, believers, I know it happens quickly that we confess our sin and that the minister stands up there and does this and says some stuff. Receive it as the words of life for you. Don't let that part pass you by without you knowing and feeling the resurrecting power. And the fact that it's resurrecting power is evidenced by the fact that you and I, what do we do physically after the declaration of forgiveness? What do we do? We stand. And we don't just stand because... Episcopalians like to stand up and, and, and sit down you know, at various parts and it's just sort of the next part and the blocking right, for, for the liturgy. It's because we rise in Christ and once the word has been declared, dry bones live. Yes. 
dry bones live, and the dead have been raised. And so we stand. And we sing a hymn. Why? Because your eyes have been opened and all of a sudden you see for the first time the corpse of you is now the living Spirit of Christ in you, beholding the glory of the Father and crying out, praise be to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this moment, this hymn, really should just be this, this point of uh, incredible joy and incredible power because it's the resurrected being the resurrected Adam and Eve, the new Adam, Jesus Christ in you, singing to the Father, right? This is exciting stuff. It's really exciting. Okay. I get a little jazzed. All right, second part, second movement. This is the part where we always get accused of being really odd because there's all this up and down and it feels very broken, right? Scripture readings, then we stand and then and we sit again and there's another scripture reading, then we sing. It feels so awkward, this whole... That's what I hear a lot. It feels awkward. There is a purpose and there is a rhythm going on in what's happening with scripture reading and psalm and hymn and scripture reading and hymn and scripture reading and hymn. Why do we do that? Well, we go back to our original idea. The Word of God births faith. It's a mini-cycle where God speaks and we respond. Again, the new creature made alive is now able to talk to God, right? We didn't have a mouth to talk to God before. Now we do. So God speaks in His Word and we respond back our kind of corporate amen with our prayers, with our songs and our hymns. And so it's an opportunity to recognize that worship is a dialogue between God and His people where He's renewing His wedding vows with you where he's reminding you of his covenant faithfulness. God speaks and we respond. And so we hear the declaration of forgiveness and we respond with the song. We hear the psalm and the epistle. We pray it together. And then we re- respond with a song, like, like a song like the canticle of Isaiah or, or the one that we'll sing today, the, the second hymn of Isaiah. Then the gospel is read and we sing another song. Why? Because this dialogue shows what it's like for the alive person to talk to God. And again, we think of this, this arc, this movement. God is drawing us to his heart slowly. The alive person is now talking to and praising God before we get into the prayers, right? Before we get to that more intimate moment. Finally, we are at the place where we're praying together. We begin with the Lord's Prayer wonderfully because it's the model. It's kind of the thing that opens us up. It's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's kind of the summary. Um, I often tell my kids and remind my kids who, when we ask them to lead us in prayer around the table at dinner time, they don't know what to pray. I'll just remind them. I'll say, Jesus actually had an answer. If you don't know what to pray, always go back to the Lord's Prayer. If you're feeling tongue-tied, go back to the Lord's Prayer and allow it to guide your tongue and your heart in praying for things. And so I'm glad and thankful that we pray it every week. And then we, we have the Lord's Prayer, which we pray together, and then the suffrages, which is this... Uh, um, this back and forth kind of idea. The suffrages are all scripture. Every last bit of them is scripture. And so again, God is giving us the words to pray. And then the collects. The collects, what in the world is a collect, right? Um, a collect, I would use that word to help you understand what it means. It means a couple of things. Number one, it means that it, it's collecting the prayers of all the people and allowing us to pray this together, I would say it's also that moment where the pieces of your heart that are still feeling a little bit out there and strewn about, God is collecting so that you can enter in and bring your tender, collected heart to pray the prayers 
that you need to pray before God. Which is why after that moment, we move into the prayers of intercession, which are always the most personal because they're our parish prayers. They're the prayers for our people where we're praying for those who are sick, for the big events of life that are very meaningful for a church, baptisms, funerals, weddings. You know, we hate for it to ever feel like um, the prayers are bulletin board for kind of what's going on in the church. So-and-so got married. So-and-so died. So-and-so got baptized. That shouldn't be how it is. It should really be much more like we're all hearing what God is doing in our family life and we're praising God for it and we're bringing our family to the Lord. God, take us all. Take us from birth and baptism to the day I die and to all the significant events in between. And we're, we're wrapping them up and giving them to God and asking Him to do something about it, right? Which is why we're at the heart of the Father. And then to kind of conclude is that general thanksgiving prayer. And you can see it as a wrap-up prayer when you pray it next time at 11 or next week at 9. Recognize it as this wonderful summary of everything that's happened thus far from the moment we, were, we began on earth till we reached the heart of the Father. We're able to just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for bringing me here where I'm able to hear your wooing, sweet heart. And then, when we're at the heart of God, when we're at that place, we welcome one another. We sing a hymn to prepare us to hear from God's heart. You know, I, I have gone back and forth about this idea, but I wonder whether it's a better idea not to take notes during a sermon. Why? And that sounds like a blasphemous thing for a pastor to say, right? Why? Because the sermon isn't first and foremost education. It isn't a classroom. The sermon is God's very word declared to you individually and to you corporately about how much he loves you. And if someone's pouring out their heart to you about how much they love you, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you're not taking notes, right? <laughs> right? You're not taking notes. You're hearing and receiving it as one who needs the tender love of God. And if you do take notes, I don't mean do it, especially, especially if it helps you to hear better. Because I think actually sometimes when I take notes, it helps me to concentrate and hear that word. But recognize and don't let those notes somehow let you stay at a distance from the very intimate and powerful thing that God the Father is doing in His Son by the power of the Spirit in declaring to you how much He loves you. Okay? The sermon is a charismatic and supernatural moment. All right? It's not a break. It is a moment of worship where we offer to God the listening of our ears. And as we worship through listening, God is saying things to your very heart. Open yourself. Pray for the, the Holy Spirit to fill you. And so that's that section. And then afterwards, it's appropriate. God has given himself to us in his Son that we would say, take all of me. It's why in that moment in the offertory, you notice that the plates kind of are gathered and then they're brought up. Why are they brought up? It's because from all our various places, we're saying, God, take us all, that we as a church might be given, offered up to you as a living sacrifice. If you're reading through the book of Romans, it's the point where you've hit chapter 12. And it says, Therefore, in light of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, your whole selves as living sacrifices. So don't ever think you're just putting money in to pay the light bill, for goodness sake. 
You're putting money in as a token. We are watching these things go as a token. Imagine your whole body being carried up by an acolyte up to the front and being laid out before the Lord. That's what you should feel in that moment. That's me. That would be incredibly heavy if the pastor were trying to lift up every last person. I mean, we'd have to sort of put chiropractic work into our budget. But you get the idea, right? You get the idea that this is the moment where we offer ourselves to God. So in the offertory, as the choir is singing and giving their offering to God and as we're reflecting on it, pray these kinds of prayers. God, take me. Take all of me this week. Hold me fast. Keep me focused and fixed upon you so that in my interactions with others, I am your hands and feet. Let me die to myself this week and live for other people, caring more about the other, freed to love my neighbor because there's, there's no, no issues between me and you, God. And I know now that I'm free. I'm free. And finally, we have the closing prayers, the blessing and the dismissal. And before I move to questions, this is a really powerful moment, that final moment. Let us go forth in the name of Christ. What do we say? Thanks be to God. Why is that moment in our liturgy? It's because we're not supposed to stay up on the mountain. We have a mission. And we're reminded of that mission, that we are all, as living sacrifices, ambassadors, as we walk out those doors to share the love and the light of Christ. And then we get the blessing of having this sort of rubber band effect of the way worship and mission work together. Because, uh, you know, as we go out into mission... God pulls us back in for worship again. Hopefully we've gathered a few more that come. And then as we go out again, as he sends us out, fueling us with the gospel and worship, we go out, gather more. And that's the weekly rhythm, this weekly rhythm that morning prayer gives us so well. I hope and pray that as we go through the motions of morning prayer, that it actually feels like a journey to God's heart. And then a powerful, inspiring call to mission back into the world that you and I were called from, from death to life. Questions? It's actually a two-part question regarding the, uh, the uh, prayer of confession. Yeah. You know, a lot of the things that we do Lord's Prayer, for example, comes directly from the Bible. This is the uh, prayer of confession that comes directly from the Bible. Glad that you asked. Does the prayer of confession come from the Bible? Here's the prayer of confession. Here are all the passages of Scripture that are tied to it. <laughs> I had this sweet and awesome graphic, and I feel pretty cool right now. Uh, I'll give you your 20 later. Yeah. That was awesome. I really didn't plan for that, but that was great. Well, so the history of morning prayer is that it, it comes from um, the reformers' condensation of a much more robust model for daily prayer uh, in the medieval tradition. In the medieval Christian tradition, um, Christians, especially who were part of monasteries, would go through what are called daily offices. And those daily offices would have them every, every hour or two, praying before God uh, various 
various sets of prayers to kind of keep themselves devoted to God all day. When Cranmer uh, formulated the prayer book, he condensed those eight or nine uh, moments of daily prayer into two. In it, he gave us an act of grace because he, he said, first of all, um, sometimes you, I, and this is sort of my understanding of Cranmer's thinking, sometimes we can be so busy doing stuff for God that we forget that worship is first and foremost about receiving the fact that God has done it all for us. So instead of this long, convoluted um, series of daily prayers, I'm going to condense it down to two. Instead of uh, matins, lauds, prime, compline, all that stuff, morning and evening prayer. Uh, So it it comes from a stitching together of a lot of those daily offices. Um, And then other traditions have taken from it because most churches that speak English have somewhere in their family tree made a decision whether they were going to stick with or move away from the prayer book at some point. Because again, we have to realize when the prayer book was founded, it was the only worship available in the English-speaking language. So any English-speaking congregation, apart from ones from tradition outside England that have since become English speakers, have had to reckon in their own history with whether they're going to stick with or deviate from morning prayer and the Holy Communion liturgy and the like. And boy, that's why denominations were formed. It was because they couldn't gr- agree over this stuff. Zach. Andrew. Um, just to, uh, who asked that very good question? Jane, was that you? I recognized your voice. Uh, Yeah, just to piggyback on that, actually, even in the Episcopal Church, the part of the service in Holy Communion, right up until you get to Holy Communion, was universally never done at the Episcopal Church. It was almost always morning prayer for almost every single service. And then if they did communion once a quarter or whenever it was, they would add communion at the end. But there was no, what's called the anti-communion service that didn't exist. So every parish in the Episcopal Church at one point in time was a morning prayer parish. And if they had seen the first part of the communion service, they would have thought, this is weird. I don't know what we're doing here. Zach, just a real quick question, because uh, I want uh, Billy to have time, but not Lauren. Um, uh, so uh, I hear what you're saying about you know, the vertical nature of, of worship, but can you, can you comment on actually the horizontal nature of worship? Definitely. And what it means to be gathered together? Yeah. Um, it's really important, given the verticality that is offered in morning prayer and in Holy Communion. And what I mean by verticality, it's, it's oriented toward individuals looking up at God and hearing that address. But sometimes that can shape a worship culture where we don't recognize that there are actually other people in the room too. And it almost can feel like worship is this place where we all come to do our private devotions with God and we happen to be next to someone else, which is contrary to the whole nature of what ecclesia and churches and what gathering is. We talked about this last week, why I thought it was a great addition to the liturgy, that we do something as weird as it felt to pass the peace. Why? Because it's not only about, worship is not only about connecting with God, it's about recognizing that we're connected in a body of other people. And that might have something to say to us about what it looks like at the beginning of worship. To gather. Maybe it's not only praying privately and quietly, but maybe actually what helps us gather and uh, prepare for worship is to greet one another. 
You know, it might just be the case that greeting one another is actually a wonderful sign and powerful reminder of what worship is. That when I'm singing and praying, I'm singing with and praying with other believers. Lauren. Yeah. How does that relate to how we worship now on Sunday morning? Oh. Um, it, I mean, we, I talked about it last week that the prayer book has gone through steady evolutions, um, sometimes big, sometimes small. Um, those revisions have, especially with the communion liturgy, um, have, I mean, just broadly speaking, have moved steadily away from us engaging worship in a more Protestant way. And I don't mean Protestant just to be flag waver. What I mean is the gospel has become a little bit less clear in worship because some of this word of God births faith stuff, the ordering has been messed with in later revisions of the Book of Common Prayer. And so uh, we'll get into this the next two weeks uh, when we do it, but to speak it with a broad brush some of the changes we've made at Advent haven't been new things. They've been to actually revert to liturgies that were older precisely to get back to some of this theology and this feeling of how the Word of God births faith in us. Good question. Last one. Back to your chart on part one. Uh, I appreciate your explanation of what the, how the, the line is, is is to start down and, and move up. But uh, this is more of a personal preference question, but I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that, that would ask this. But uh, right where the canicles come in that point on the chart. Okay. The canicles? Yes. Okay. I mean, why, a lot of the prayers, we, the Lord's Prayer being one and all the others, we say every Sunday in, in, on the morning prayer service. Why at that point in the service, particularly with your explanation of, of what is attempting to be done with our heart, why isn't the second song of Isaiah, Surely God Saves Me, why don't we sing that canticle every single Sunday morning? <laughs> well, I think you're just, what I hear you saying is, that's such a wonderful, powerful song that engaging, speaks the gospel to us. And an, engage, gospel, and an engaging in a canticle that everybody in the church sings so Enthusiastic. I think that that's a wonderful rhetorical question to let dangle there. Um, it's a good one. It's a good one. I think what you're saying is that's a wonderful moment in our worship service. And I agree. It is. I sometimes find our kids humming it. And I realize if there's a message I want rolling around in the heart of my kid, I want them to know that it's God who saves me. I'll trust in Him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense. And he will be my savior. You know, oh, starting to get moved just thinking about it, right? Because it's powerful. It's a powerful word. Powerful word. All right, friends, blessings. See you next week.